Hey, listeners, this is Neil Ludevic and Amir Jandali. Welcome to Leave Looking Up, where we have uplifting conversations about the state of the world with our heroes, with the intention to demystify, orient, and leave you, our listeners, inspired. Today, we sit down with Dr. Leila Ajaralu, an award winning designer, sustainability provocateur, social scientist, and entrepreneur. Layla's list of accolades is truly something to behold. She's a main stage TED speaker, LinkedIn changemaker, and was named a United Nations Champion of the Earth in 2016 for her work in advancing science and innovation for sustainability. And on top of all of that, she's the founder of the Co-Project Farm, a project we'll hear about today, and the Unschool of Design, which she founded in 2014. In her words, the school's name comes from focusing on undoing the damage that mainstream schools have done and is all about redesigning the world so that it works better for all of us. The Unschool is now a global initiative with over 150 alumni from 32 countries and is a winner of a Core 77 Design Education Award. In this episode, we hear about climate change as a design challenge. We learn concepts like life cycle assessment and regenerative farming. And Layla takes us on her journey of seeing the interconnectedness of all things, from a coconut in Mexico to an aphid in Portugal. I first met Layla in New York City back in 2014. I was a budding sustainability entrepreneur, and I would spend time at a co-working space called the Center for Social Innovation, where hundreds of change makers in various social impact fields would gather to work. And side note, that's also where I first met Neil. Anyway, I was one of the climate nerds in the space and wanted to learn as much as I could. And everyone just kept saying, have you met Layla? You have to meet Layla. Let me introduce you to Layla. So I got to finally meet Layla. Layla has a long list of wins and accolades, including uh, becoming the United Nations champion of the earth, which is like kind of the most gangster (laughs) thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) It's it's a great title to have, I got to (laughs) say. It is, right? Like it's... That's a really cool title. I uh, I wanted it printed on a like a, a sweat jacket at some stage. I think you or should. Like a badge I would, that I could pull should, out yeah. when people are being very unsustainable, like when people are using disposable cups just, in a sit down restaurant. I would want to just be able to like open a jacket and flash a badge and be like, on behalf of the United Nations, <laughs> as a champion of the earth, I deplore your blatant use of disposability when you clearly have the capacity to wash up reusables. That would be great. <laughs> I would love to be able to do that. But instead, I'm just the annoying customer who's like, I refuse to eat here if you don't give me mm. a reusable plate. <laughs> I don't have that kind of cred. It doesn't really work unless you have a badge. So... Have you had to have you gotten to play that card in in a real life context like that? I mean, like there's there's the high level stuff. You get invited to speak. You're 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 invited to join panels and 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 think tanks. Have you had any like smaller kind of momentary flashing of the badge, if you will? Yeah, I remember it was actually someone was about to release about 200 balloons, helium balloons, right by the ocean at an event where they thought it would be very symbolic. And I saw them walking with the balloons and I was like, like in slow motion, like ran over to them, like, no, <laughs> like, you know, um, and I, I was like, I literally said, 
as champion of the earth, I beg mm. you, please don't release these balloons. <laughs> like, like, I was basically that, like, oh. and they were like very embarrassed. And I was like, there are turtles that are going to eat these. <laughs> you know? I, just, I was like, it's such a like 1990s thing to do. And so that's, you know, in that situation, I think I burnt a couple of bridges, but they were fine bridges to burn for the sake of those 200 balloons not ending up in the ocean. When did these thoughts, these this awareness of glitter, of balloons, of you are you are ruining the earth, you are ruining the environment, all this kind of stuff? Was there a child that was doing this as well, a little Layla that was at all the birthday parties and all the birthdays, all the kids are ready to release the balloons? It's like, well, this. Is I was the very happy to have balloons and glitter as a small human because I, mm. I wasn't aware of any of these things. I think for me, like certainly about learning about the impact that we as individuals have on the planet from like an environmental perspective, there was a very significant moment origin story, which was when I was 19 and I was studying product design. There was like a class with this engineering lecturer and he was extremely blasé where he was like, oh, you're all going to learn about this thing called the Gaia theory, which is that everything in nature is interconnected and you're going to make choices which will probably have far reaching impacts on the planet. And here's a textbook that explains it and la 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 moving along. And it was like absolutely mind blowing. Like I was like, hang on a second. That makes a lot of sense. Why hasn't anyone told me this before? Like, of course my actions have impacts. Of course everything's interconnected. Like, and it was a really like profound, holy shit moment that of course I like turned to the rest of my class and was like, guys, what the fuck are we gonna do about this, right? I was super freaked out and that no one else seemed to care. Like it was so <laughs> such a profound difference in like reaction. And it was a really important moment for me because not only did I create this awareness about my impact and cause and effect and everything being interconnected, but also about how other people cannot care with the same information, mm. which struck me as very problematic and bizarre. And so it kind of triggered my desire to learn more about like why humans are humans and why we do the terrible things we do to the planet and each other. And so it resulted in a few months, me quitting design school and going to study sociology. Cause I was like, this is clearly a human problem. Like this must be us. And so I really wanted to understand how we worked and how society worked. And that was great because I learned we're a complete hot mess inside and out in the most kind of <laughs> wonderful and tragic way at the same time. Like all of our biases, as well as how we've designed the economy, these things are all just mirrors of each other and create a lot of the social and environmental issues that we face. I loved it. It was like something inside me was like, this is what I was waiting for. <laughs> so I actually ended up becoming an intern in this research center looking at something called life cycle assessment, which is a kind of holistic analysis of the whole of life environmental impacts of a product. And it was at a research center called the Center for Design. And so I really wanted to still work in design and to solve that problem I experienced when I was 19, which was that designers who have this huge influence on the world are basically being taught how to ruin it without any understanding of the impacts. And that 10-minute conversation mm. my engineering lecturer gave me hasn't changed that dramatically since then. So anyway, um, to answer your question, I learned how to think in systems from doing that internship, which was really great. And I learned how to do this very nerdy, boring thing called life cycle assessment, which was quite transformative for me, which is basically uncovering the hidden life of everything created to be able to kind of break it down, to see its whole life and how it's extracted from nature and its end of life impacts, and then be able to use that as a foundation for redesigning those 
things that happen in the economy, which are always drawing on nature. So when Layla said this tool was transformative for her, that's kind of an understatement. It practically became her life mission to make more people implement it in their design processes. In fact, learning about the life cycle assessment was the true start of her entrepreneurial journey. She quit a well-paid research position at 25 to become an entrepreneur so she could focus on making educational tools around sustainability. Her first project? An animation video all about the life cycle assessment tool. Now what you're about to hear is Layla's voice narrating the role of different characters in the video because she couldn't afford to hire anybody to play them. This was the beginning of a series of animations called The Secret Life of Things. So, Eric, tell me, where are you now? Um, I mean all these little bits. I, I, I think I'm metal. Metal all. It's called Life Psychology, and it's like a five-minute animation of a cell phone called Mr. Ericsson, who has an existential crisis because he's abandoned for a newer model that has a camera. This is telling the age that this was done in. This was done in 2010. And so he goes to get past life regression therapy. And in that he learns about how he was made (laughs) and his life cycle stages. And then he's prescribed by his therapist, who's called Dr. Fraud, who happens to be a very old camera, (laughs) random, that he could have been designed better. You are very lucky, Eric. I have friends in high places. They can fix you a new life. Because the regression, it showed you had very valuable pieces inside of you. And so this animation basically explains this complex thing that I learned how to do, life cycle assessment, in a fun five-minute hilarious animation. And along with it, I created all of these educational tools that first-year university student uh, teachers could also use and also would kind of like ignite that uh, deeper conversation and knowledge gap. I love it. What a journey. Was there, as an entrepreneur, I'm just curious, was there a light bulb moment that you had? Have you just gone over and you're like, I I know what I'm going to do. Well-paid research job and jumped into a a fire of not knowing how to run a business and not knowing how to manage cash flow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we're hardly going to figure that out yet. Do you know how to do that now? It's been like 20 years. I'm still struggling. Right. Um, (laughs) No. So, yeah, there was actually a couple key moments. So I, I put my, I took myself on this like self-imposed study tour and I went to all of these research centers around the world that were kind of advancing sustainable design. And I did all these interviews with the professors and the people. And my general feeling was that it wasn't happening. And they were like, we've done all this research and written all these papers. We have all these ideas, but people aren't really doing it. And I remember my like idealistic brain going, we have a PR problem here. Like clearly there is a problem in the way this knowledge, which is super interesting and really important, but let's admit quite dense and not very relevant. So you've got all these academics who never practiced as designers telling designers how to do their job, which is fast paced, hierarchical, extremely complicated, iterative. And so there was like this gap. And so I was like, there's clearly a miscommunication. So maybe I can fill that gap I only did two years of design school, but I think I can figure this out. I think I've got enough of the training to figure out how and also using the sociology training that I learned to create content that was really informative, but also deep and had that substance. So that was why I kind of went out on my own. But then it was really cool, actually, because I did all that. I also had this crazy tiny little shop in the city in Melbourne. The shop that Layla is referring to isn't exactly what one might imagine in a major city like New York or L.A., 
It's actually a redesign of one of several small silver cylinders that had previously served as a newspaper stand, which was located in the central business district in Melbourne. Layla reimagined the shop into a micro-entrepreneurial showcase of all things made locally and sustainably. The project ran for two summers, attracted thousands of customers until it was reimagined again. Today, it's a thriving crepe shop, with many other small reinventions popping up around Melbourne inspired by her shop. It was in this old pillar that had been used to sell newspapers. Like, before 7-Eleven took over, a lot of cities around the world would have newspaper stands. So the city of Melbourne had a design competition, and I won it to, like, get this free pillar for a year. And so I ran this um, intervention, and it was really successful. And we rented it out to other people, and it basically created the justification for micro-entrepreneurial activity in the city. And now if you go to the city of Melbourne, the whole street is filled with these little micro, um, like, old. it's a crepe stand, you can get crepes, but also there's, like, people selling handmade jewellery and other things that it kind of utilised these disused spaces and created a more kind of community-centric retail environment. And I totally did that. Like, it was so crazy because I was like, when I saw it at the end of, like, the two-year cycle... I was like, oh, my God, creativity can make change. <laughs> like, really? Like, because the city of Melbourne basically used me as the justification to get the policy change. And to this day, like, every time I go home and I walk down the street, I'm like, da, 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 da. <laughs> like I'm very kind of, you know, talked about my crazy little intervention that really helped prove a point and make a kind of in, a change. And so after a few years, I did my PhD and I did it on these kinds of interventions. And I kind of reflected on on what that had taught me. Um, and it was a demonstration of how to create change and how to demonstrate change rather than just talk about it. And that's been a driving force through everything that I have done and everything that I teach other people to do is that you need to take action 150% of the time. Because if you just theorize or talk about something, you have no feedback. And as designers, we are taught to make things, to break them, to remake them so they get better. And most people in the world are often taught that they shouldn't try something for the risk of failure. And so I think that's one of the key things that, you know, a design education gives you is this, this like, oh, how can I break this thing? Oh, that's broken. We've got to make that better. You know, like the handle came off. How do we improve that? In these ways, Layla is constantly experimenting her way towards improving society. And people are taking note. The animation with Eric the Phone titled Life Psychology won the 2010 Melbourne Design Award. And she continued the series and actually got it incorporated into university curriculums. And then, in 2012, she won a second Melbourne Design Award for creating a sustainable rotating bookshelf made entirely out of discarded construction plywood. It's called the Unwaste Bookcase. And alongside her many TED Talks, which have millions of views, she's given talks around the world about redesigning systems, the power of disruptive change, and the ethics of technology. Her United Nations Champion of the Earth Award that we mentioned earlier was for her work advancing innovative and sustainable design. And despite all these wins, she emphasizes that she's still learning. I was getting these like experiences of, you know, learning to kind of persevere, but also that you can have these positive outcomes or unintended outcomes from using creativity as a force versus like, dictating what should happen. And that's the other thing, like with all of these projects, like every single project, I've made a lot of games, like everything is about participation and invitation, right? So even somebody who comes to like 
my school that I run or anything, or when I run a lecture, like I'm not trying to tell people the world is screwed up and that they need to do something. I'm inviting them to imagine an alternative future that they can contribute to designing and that they are helping to participate, like create that future that we want to live in. So it's something that, you know, I think for me as well, like I hate being told that things are bad. Like it doesn't work for me. It freaks me out. It disassociates yeah. me cognitively. And it makes me also want to argue against whoever's telling me. And I felt like that at university when, you know, whenever we were talking about a lot of these issues, it was all theoretical versus practical. So I went and, and got an internship at the local government that did it. And I learned how to do waste audits, very messy, and also learned a lot about what government people throw out in their trash. Let's just say I'm going to keep that one under wraps. <laughs> but the thing is, is that then I went back to my class with my professor who was like, and, and I was like, actually, I just did this and the safety standards are quite intense. And I'd like to share with the rest of the group, like what we did from the government. And he like shut me down didn't want me to share. And I'm like, well, how is anyone going to learn this if they're not doing it? And it's for me also been such a critical thing. Like I do everything I can physically to learn. Like that's how we learn. The theoretical things are great. And I love to philosophize as much as anybody else, but it does not give you the lived experience of knowing how something exists in the world and how it will play out and, and feedback and everything else. So I'm hearing like an insatiable curiosity and also just like, I want to solve this thing. Let's go do it. I want to find this internship. I'm going to get this. I mean, I think there's been some huge wins. I'd like to start with when the energy isn't here, when you don't hear that win. Yeah. What is the, what is the drive? What do you lean on? You know, do you have someone in your corner? If we're talking about systems thinking, what are the systems that you've created for yourself that continue to move this needle forward in this way? Mm. Well, just like, uh, I'm a lazy entrepreneur who doesn't ever do spreadsheets before starting an umpteenth business in a foreign country. And then later going, I probably really should have calculated that out first. I'm a little bit the same when it comes to most of my projects. I'm very inspired by things that I experience. I get ideas, we test them. I have an amazing small team who are champions. And I think the cultivating that group of collaborators that are really willing to try as well has been a, a very important part of being able to hyper deliver on a lot of things, but also get back up when things do fail miserably. I'm still learning how to be better at my craft. I think it's a life journey and rest is super important. Everyone says like, do you must never sleep? And I'm like, I get a solid eight hours, like a hundred percent. If I don't, I'm a terrible person. So you know, I think the misconception of an entrepreneur just being like sleep deprived and, and that I don't think is a very appropriate because everybody needs to sleep and you go through phases of like, yeah, you've got a, a deadline or something that you really want to get done. And so you're kind of pushing yourself, but you're not pushing yourself so that you then fall apart and can't do the thing that you want to achieve. Right. So I think for me, it's yeah a combination of having good collaborators, cultivating my own sense of kind of like uh, fulfillment and achievement from the the things that I do, and also knowing when to rest and taking that time to do that. So that once you're recharged, you can come back and get even more shit done. <laughs> That's, you know. I, th I think I want to carry on this question a little bit more. And I'm curious about when there's so many waves that come and go in the start of a new project, the working on the new project, the completion of the new project, et cetera. And then it's 
almost inevitable that you burn out uh, along the yeah. way or et cetera. Was or there like post-project depression? Once you've exactly. deleted something, it's like you've got this emptiness because everything in your being was filled with whatever you were getting done. And then you're like, hang on, what a second, what do I do now? Yeah. There is that feeling that happens. I think that's the curse of the creative. I think everybody feels so that. I wonder if you want to touch on that and I want to tap into when there might have been a time where you maybe hedged away from burning out. You're like, oh, I've been here before. Let me just like take a step back or whatever that is. Like a moment where you're like, oh, I got through it and I only half burned out this time. Nice, Layla. <laughs> like, you know, like when did you kind of like calibrate your energy? Yay for like, me for learning how to disrupt those toxic cycles. <laughs> you know, it's whether you're creating something new or whether you're trying a painting or something like. I don't know how to paint. That's a universal lesson right there, right? Yeah. So I would say like, you know, I took on this huge project in 2017. I re restored a farm in Portugal and it was like a physical space that required people. We grew a lot of food to feed people and we had staff who helped grow that food. And then COVID came and it all kind of, I tried to keep it all going in the beginning with that, you know, those first few months where you were like, everything's going to be fine. We're just going to stay <laughs> for a couple months. This is all going to be a-okay, right? Like, so anyway, after three months of that, it was, I think everybody kind of got to that, oh shit moment where this is not going to go away anytime soon. And, it's, mm. and we need to like adjust our reality to deal with this perhaps being a two to three year thing. And on a farm that was set up to host like hundreds of people a year, we had like this brain spa concept and we, we did all these open days, which were all like community driven food based activities, teaching people kind of what I called contemporary sustainable living, which was forms of different ways of growing food and, you know, eating vegetables. So we just host all these events all over the world and cook with people like delicious vegetarian food to make it super sexy. So anyway, the thing is, is that I encountered like a pretty severe schism of like having to make these important decisions that affected people's lives. My team had to be let go and I had to shut the company because it was a complicated environment that it was in Portugal and it's just a complicated business environment. Um, you can't keep companies if you're not trading and pay, repay everybody's money all at the same time. And so then I was left alone on a farm in a foreign country during a global pandemic and my country then shut its borders. So I couldn't go back to Australia even, and I couldn't have anyone come to the farm because of the pandemic. So I was all alone on a giant farm, which I deeply loved, but that was set up to have like four people working on it at any one time. And I didn't want the system to fail. And so I was still doing all the work and like sobbing at the same time. It's like, you know, shoveling donkey shit. And the donkeys would come up and be like, you know, it's not that bad. And I'd be like, I don't know what to do. So um, it was a very horrible experience because I knew that I couldn't stay there and I couldn't do it. I couldn't manage it and also keep my mental health. Everybody was like, oh, it's so great to be on a farm during a pandemic. I'm like, alone. <laughs> with like 10 animals like you know how much work that is <laughs> Damn, was, like wow. trying to eat all the broad beans that had been grown for like a hundred people i'm like i could never eat a broad bean actually to this day if i see broad beans i i have like immediate trigger trauma from like crying whilst like shucking shucking like thousands of them <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, in the end, I, I had to make some very rash and quick decisions that were very traumatizing. And um, 
you know, to try and keep the system going. So I definitely experienced like a combination of just burnout and fatigue and just sadness. Like it was a very sad and emotional experience as well as being fearful for my life, like many other people were during that period. And then a year later, when it was, you know, round two of COVID kind of hit and we went into longer lockdowns and more extreme kind of restrictions, I had to make a decision about the future of the farm. And I just had, it was very hard and very painful, but I prioritized that, like, I wanted to keep it for myself, but that wasn't the right thing for the system. You needed people to be fully immersed and, and, to kind of give over to the system. And I felt like the only way you could really get that is if somebody else owned it, not in a kind of like ownership, but in a a kind of like investment perspective. Like stewardship. Personally. Yes. And so in the end, I did find a family to buy it and, and they live there today mm. and, and they look after it and their kids are growing up there and having an idyllic life with the donkeys. And uh, it was a, <laughs> still a very difficult, have a very difficult decision I had to make. And I'm still not like 100% aligned with the outcome, but it is also the best I could do in that circumstance and for the right reasons in the sense that it wasn't for me, it was for the system. And that was also what I learned from being there for four nice. years and nice. very immersed in it is the system is always bigger than you. And it's a beautiful thing nice. mm. uh, when you can learn from it, but also know when it's, it's no longer what you are can kind of contributing to. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I definitely felt like, I stopped myself from continuing a pretty painful yeah. process yeah. so that I could free up space to heal. I'm curious about the process of building, building and investing in that first person that's like expanding who you are and what you can do and your ultimate efficiency mm. and how you tackle projects. But also that moment of maybe I have to go backwards and maybe you have to go backwards to go forwards, you know, part of that. But that's something that I struggle with. This idea of like delegating and dividing and thinking, well, are there things that only I can do? And can I take all this knowledge that's in my brain and put it to someone else so they can advance this? And it's something I've seen Amir do at this last marketplace of the future where, you know, he's really created a team, but it's so difficult. And you put so much energy into it. So I'm just curious, what's that process? Because from the outside looking in, it seems like you've got that pretty done well. Well, I think there's two separate things. Like, I think the thing is about delegation or building relationships with other people and, and relying on them to do things it's complicated because there are things that i know i'm not good at i'm just not so it makes sense to hire other people to do the thing that i'm not good at that that makes a lot of sense so bookkeeping and editing and all of these types of things i, I have no problem in being like here you take it actually i don't ever want to deal with it if i can avoid it but unfortunately as a business owner you do need to be on top of those things as far as like the other stuff, I think it's really important. It's always important to find the right fit for sure, like energy wise, but also you don't want to hire yourself. You want to hire people who are complementary and who will gain something from working with you. So it is more of a kind of collaboration and it might be that they only gain something for a year and, and then they move on. As long as it's kind of a mutually beneficial learning experience and you know, you, you feel less responsible for say teaching them and more open to receiving their ideas and input but it's not that easy it's hard it's hard to find the right fit but i wouldn't say that i've mastered this either right like i have very high expectations so of myself i always say i have the worst boss ever she's such a bitch man she's so annoying like the quality expectation is very high so you know it's like um it's a it's a self-imposed uh, problem while she may be her own worst boss 
She still views failure as an opportunity to learn. That's what makes her more willing to test ideas and take risks. It's also probably why she goes all in when learning something new, either by taking an internship or launching a project, like the farm, for example. Do you want to know why and how I ended up buying a farm? It's kind of an embarrassing story, actually. So when I got named Champion of the Earth, of which I totally thought was a scam phone call, turns out it wasn't, um, they did the award ceremony in Cancun in Mexico. And one of my fellow awardees that year was Afro Shea, who's done the world's biggest beach cleanup in Varsoli Beach in India. It's incredible. He's an amazing human. And he says to me, hey, Layla, do you want to go do a beach cleanup uh, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m.? And I was like, I've never done that before. What a great idea. So we trope off with a group of local like ocean conservation guys who were very cool. And they took us to this beach and we get there and I'm like, I don't see any plastic. And Afros was like immediately kind of like digging a couple layers into the sand and like all of these tiny bits of plastic. And then suddenly like flip flops. And it was like, and I was like, Oh, I get it. Like the ocean comes and like puts layers of sand on top. Okay. So I'm having this whole moment where I'm like, Oh, this makes a lot of sense. And then I'm standing there and I see a coconut. Okay. I'm in Mexico. So coconuts are common there. Um, And I say to the guy who's taken us out there, something to the effect of like, huh, there's a coconut. And he was like, yes, that's a coconut. And I was like, huh, is it going to become a coconut tree? And he was like, how do you not know that? A coconut is the seed for a coconut tree. And in my head, I was like, I'm literally imagining delicious coconut milk as the purpose of a coconut. And I was like, oh, shit, I know nothing. And then I was like, how embarrassing. I just got named champion of the earth, and I don't even know that a coconut is the seed of a coconut tree. That's and I was amazing. like, oh, dear. It's <laughs> like, hell. <laughs> so, like, this dude's face said it all. Like, what the hell? This woman is so dumb. And I was like, I obviously don't know many things about how nature works. Um, and for me, like a knowledge gap is an amazing opportunity to do something. And so, um, yeah, I just had decided then, well, in the weeks preceding as every time I shuddered at the embarrassment, uh, that I had put myself under, I really started to realize that I didn't understand. I knew theoretically how nature did things, Mm. but I didn't understand like realistically in, in, in my kind of, um, knowledge set how nature solved problems. And that is what I wanted to learn. And so, you know, um, that was why I kind of took on this project and it was an abandoned mm-hmm. farm and it was, it needed to be regenerated. So I also wanted to explore concepts of what it meant to be like a custodian and regeneration. Anyway, I learned a lot. I learned so many things. Um, one thing I learned is that there's no such thing as waste in nature, which sounds very obvious when you say it, but it's a little bit like everything's interconnected. And when I found that out, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Everything has a purpose, even in death. Like I also learned that death doesn't really exist in nature. Everything's just kind of like reconditioned to provide new life, which sounds kind of hippie, but it so makes sense. Then I started thinking like, is the entire earth one giant metabolism? Like at just one point I got a, an aphid infestation right? Aphids are tiny little guys that are under the leaves of like green things. Um, so like new shoots, or in my case, it was on an orange tree and they have these little pincers and they suck out the, the sugars, right? From the, the veins of the, the, the tree. And when I say an infestation, I mean like 
you would turn a leaf over and they'd like the whole underside would be black or white from the color of the aphids. And it just happened really quickly <laughs> as well. Like I was like, what the, and cause you're so immersed in the system, you notice these changes very quickly. Um, but prior to that, I had noticed a lot of ants, like a lot. And the ants are not so problematic. They just get on your feet sometimes and, and get annoyed if you step on their nests, but they weren't causing any major problems till I noticed the aphids. And then I was like, there's something going on here. So thank you to the internet. I discovered that ants farm aphids. They farm aphids like we farm chickens. What happens is that they need the sap that they suck from the, the tree to feed their young in the nest. So they take them in winter. I shit you not. They take them. They carry them into their nests and feed them throughout the winter so that then in the summer or the spring, they can bring them out and they attach them to the tree. They carry them to the tree and then they wait. Then they use their antennas to rub their bellies to milk them, milk them of their little sweet sugary juice that then they carry back to their babies. And because they're milking them, it makes them create more, right? So there's a whole farming ecosystem going on. So the only way you can get rid of the aphids if you pre- prevent the ants from getting no. to them. So I had to like put sticky strips around the base of the tree to like basically <laughs> stop the, the ant army and like separate them. Yeah, crazy, right? Like mind blowing shit. And like the discovery of that. And then they're like, when you, like right, I get goosebumps right, just tell because right, right. I would just sit there and be like. Amazing. It's <laughs> like, amazing. Like, oh, wow. Wow. Also, like humans, we think we're so smart, but we're just mimicking the same patterns that exist in nature, right? Like, um, so you know those kinds of things. Like, I could literally like for hours talk about the things I learned on that farm um, because I learned so many things like that that just were make so much sense, explain so many things, but then also give you these insights into this world that we all live in that we are so. Um, immune to you know we're so disconnected that's amazing and it's magic Uh, that's a i'm so glad you went on this rip that's such a beautiful story (laughs) to your point earlier about curiosity like it's it's a designer's mindset but a lot of people have it right they just shut it off they just teach themselves to like not question not be curious or not try um and so for me i would rather have tried and failed than not have tried at all actually let me tell you one of my my failures though because i feel like it's important to know that I really didn't know what I was doing. And that was at the end of four and a half years, so I was much better. But in the beginning, I was so naive to how to grow anything. I had like watched some YouTube videos on how to do no-dig farming. First of all, I'm in Portugal. It's a very different climate to the UK where that's quite popular, where it makes sense because you have a lot of moisture, which you don't in the middle of summer in Portugal. Things that I later was like, oh, that makes sense. Context is king when you're designing anything. So I go and like collect these rocks and make this cute little bed, put down the cardboard, you know, put the compost on top. Like bear in mind I'm on a giant farm and this is like the size of a kitty swimming pool. I just want to add. I've gone and bought little seedlings and I like, you know, plant them all and like every day I come out and water them. And after like four or five days, all the seedlings are like, like they're completely like killed over. And I'm like, what's wrong with them? What's, and I'm like, they need more water. So I like watered them more. Next day come out and they're like, that's, they're pretty much like lying flat on the, the soil. So I'm like, what is going on? So I start digging in the, the soil and I notice all these little white things in the soil. The soil is quite a dark color. And I was like, something weird's going on. So I go to Google and I find that there's these things called gnats, which are kind of like a hybrid fly slash mosquito that breed in wet 
nutrient-rich soil, and then they eat the roots of young plants. And so what I had done was by putting the cardboard down and putting this very intense organic material and watering it obsessively, I created the perfect (laughs) breeding zone for these flies. And after a week, a week took me to figure this out, I had created a massive fly infestation. And when I I say massive, the basement of the farm was white walls that were black. I'm not joking. There were like 10,000 oh, of them. And so, and then, so first of all, I, and it's like, like there, it's like something out of a horror movie. Like truly, I walk in and there's like, <laughs> and they're tiny as well. Right. And bear in mind, I'm also alone on this farm, right? Doing all these things by myself. And so then I was like, I don't want to use any chemicals, but now I've just created this terrible situation. So then I had to like take a bag and try and like kill the flies to try and like reduce their population size. And I then had to destroy my farm because I created all of these, you know, baby lava that I had to get rid of. So that was my first attempt at growing anything. I created a beautiful fly farm that was out of a horror movie that then had to become a murderer to solve. So, Wow. (laughs) That's a great metaphor. Yeah. (laughs) Great metaphor for a lot of things. Layla, we usually end with a fun little rapid fire round. Go for it. Yeah. Amir, you ready? I am ready. ready? Go. Take it away. Sunrise or sunset? Uh, Set. (laughs) What's your favorite color? Uh, All of them? (laughs) Together? (laughs) Which makes black? (laughs) Black. Black? Favorite animal? I'm looking at my dog who would like, he would basically abandon me if I didn't say him because he's very cute. But I did become very attached to donkeys when I had them on the farm. Mm. Best fashion advice you've ever gotten? Uh, don't wear low cut tops to meetings because when you're a lady, unfortunately, people's eyes do wander down and then you have to like basically demand that they look mm-hmm. at your face. It's a shit thing, but it's a reality. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're all like, oh, my God, that person's actually doing that. And then you can't say anything because you're in a meeting. It's super awkward. So I always wear high cut. Always. <laughs> What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? I mean, someone recently called me the queen of sustainability, which I think is great. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah, it's pretty baller. What is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Crickets. Describe yourself in three words. Uh, a little bit crazy. <laughs> That's four. <laughs> a bit crazy. There you go. <laughs> yeah. A bit crazy. <laughs> Perfect. That's such a good one. Go ahead, Neil. Did you have a nickname your parents called you when you were little? My sisters call me Lays, which I hate. Only they are allowed to call me that. Lays and Layli. Mm. And yeah, that. that yeah. If you could say one thing to God, what would you say? Why do everybody believe in you when you don't exist? And last question to bring us home, Layla, what would you like our listeners to do after hearing this episode? Uh, Take action to change one thing in the world around you that helps make it work better for other people or for the planet. So most people have jobs. They go to a job and I don't think people see the relationship between what they do and the impacts that that has. The thing that I think is a big disconnect is people's workplace and opportunity that they have to encourage change within their companies. And it might not be that they're gonna create a massive change tomorrow, but for sure, start the conversation. Um, There is a huge push right now for 
companies to maintain their talented employees. And so there is a, a very big response right now to people asking their companies to be more value aligned and to take action, to train them in sustainability and ensure that they're actually delivering it in a sincere way. So activate that. This is a great opportunity for people to get their companies to take action because the only way we're going to get there is if every company and every product and every service in the world either dies out if they're not necessary or completely transforms and we redesign everything. Layla, thank you so much for joining us, sharing some wisdom facts, a little bit about your story. Thanks, guys. Wonderful. All right, we're going to be taken out by some amazing music. Thank you again from Portugal. Love it. You can follow Layla on all social channels at Layla Ajaralu, that's L-E-Y-L-A-A-C-A-R-O-G-L-U, or on her website at www.laylaajaralu.com. For folks that love what they're hearing today and want to hear and see more, we have the complete uncut and raw episodes in video form available online on our fan page via Patreon at www.leavelookingup.com slash fans. There you can support what we're creating. Hear sound bites that didn't make it to the final cut. Gain wisdom from our guests, score merch, be the first to access our content, and more. Also, we'd like to take a second to thank you for joining us today. So if you haven't already, please be sure to leave a rating and review of the podcast in your app of choice. We also recommend following us on social media at Leave Looking Up on all social channels or subscribing to our mailing list for special content, news, and first dibs on the episodes via our website at leavelookingup.com. Leave Looking Up is hosted by myself, Neil Ludevic, and my co-host, Amir Jandali, and produced by our small but mighty team at Moon 31, a company dedicated to creating platforms for meaningful conversation that tackle the important issues of today. This episode was created through the combined efforts of myself as executive producer, our lead producer, Lushik Lotus-Lee, engineer Alexander Rossi, with support from Eric Aaron. The Moon 31 team also includes designer Andrea Kang, Glass Slipper Media, and engineer Justin Jet Carter. Original theme music by Brady Watt and background music provided from Blue Dot Sessions.